0: Welcome to the Sports and Torts Podcast, your go-to podcast for entertaining conversations on sports, law, and business. This podcast is powered by the Jay Stein Law Firm, a personal injury law firm in Atlanta, Georgia. And now, here is your host, Joshua Stein. What's up, everybody? Back at it, fresh off of a banger of an episode last week with my boy, Brian Mathis. Feedback was incredible. All of it made me smile. In fact, I am still smiling. So thank you, thank you, thank you. As we wind down on Season 2, we have a very, very special guest in the house today that I'm just thrilled and humbled was kind enough to join us for this. Um, I first came to know this man's name back in 1992, which is when so many of you probably did as well. As a big Braves fan watching that 90s team begin their run, We were introduced to sports psychology and the man who became an integral part of their 14-year division title success, working with so many of the players on the team with the mental part of the game, including a young pitcher who some of y'all may have heard of by the name of John Smoltz. That's right. With us today is Dr. Jack Llewellyn. He's a sports psychologist who works with professional athletes, corporate business people, and now the youth. To help people supplement their talents with emotional and mental tools to become champions, Doctor Jack, my man, thank you so much for being uh, here with me today.
1: No, thanks for having me. I, it's been uh, it's been a long time uh, since that that '91 team that was so good and and uh, has so many good memories from those times, but it really it it really kind of ignited sports psychology into baseball. I think that year, there were one or two teams had somebody. And after that year with Smoltz, um, almost every team has somebody in the mental game.
0: You were kind of the one that started all that, right? I mean, before then, were people really into it as much, or were you no, kind of brought it
1: all in? No, I was actually the first sports psychologist ever in baseball in, in 1973. Uh, I was a professor. Uh, started sports psychology at the University of Minnesota. And um, I didn't know at the time, but one of my students was the field director for the Montreal Expos, and he... um, Took my course, and then he went to Montreal, and and um, consequently, uh, Montreal called and and uh, took a run on my program. And I did the first year for free, second year for expenses, third year for a thousand dollars, just <laughs> just to show him it worked. Right. You know? and, right. And the system. Yeah, nobody spoke to me the whole first year, because they, you know, a lot of players are really superstitious. Right. I mean, they. Wh- they used to tell me the strangest stories, and then about a week later, if it didn't come back to them, then they trusted me. I mean, bizarre stories. And, and so anyway, uh, the first year they didn't talk to me, and I, I'm left-handed. I was a pitcher college so i called expos and asked if i get a uniform and the general manager said why for heaven's sakes and i said i'm gonna throw batting practice he said you gotta be kidding me so i went into spring training i threw batting practice and in two weeks i had more players than i could deal with
0: right gain gain their trust show them you're right there with them because they were probably like you said they're probably hesitant or reluctant to
1: they really did they yeah. really did I, I and I chewed with my dad since I was 12 so I chewed and threw batting practice one of the boys <laughs>
0: yeah. well I mean you told me yeah. about your pitching career back in the day yeah. right I mean so you're a bona fide athlete yourself
1: yeah yeah I, I from 12 to um, started started pitching and I lost my first game as a junior in college um for good run and I I I weighed 135. I was 6'2", and I weighed 135. <laughs> and they wouldn't let me pitch in the wind because they're afraid of blow me off the ground. That's but great. The Cardinals put me on a weight gaining and diet, and they liked my pitching, but they didn't know if I could, you know if I could withstand the rigors of pitching. So they put me on a weight gain and diet, and they came back three weeks and weighed me again. And I weighed 132, so went the I didn't did work out so well. Well, that's before,
0: you know, exercise and, and lifting weights was as conventional and oh, yeah. customers as we see now. So
1: Yeah, athletes um, were, uh, if you got caught lifting weights, you just pack your bag and go home.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. So I want to start with with two quotes of yours that I've read that really resonated with me. Uh, I tried to pick one, but I just couldn't. So we're gonna go two if that's okay. Uh, the first one is, you said kids don't learn to fly around trees until they fly into them. Yeah. I think that's yeah. great because as parents, we try to protect our kids, shelter our kids, um, but. You, you feel correctly so.
1: They, they've they got to learn for themselves and make some mistakes, right? They do. The, uh, kids need to go through adversity because otherwise, how are you going to learn to recover from adversity as an adult? Um, in my program, I've always taken a lot of pride in, in teaching life skills. Uh, back in my day, teachers did that. Uh, right. But nowadays, teachers don't do that. Uh, their pays based, based on test sc- scores. So, so I think sport may be the only venue left where kids can actually learn life skills. Uh, you know, uh, and 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 really, uh, maybe more importantly than 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 the recovery uh, uh, part of it is communication. Kids don't talk anymore.
0: Right. They're uh, behind their phones. They're texting.
1: They're- oh, I turned down a kid the other night, 15 years old, because he never looked at me during an hour and dinner. He was on his phone, and the folks. Never told him turned off. And and um I probably handled it poorly, but <laughs> my my son said, What'd you do? And I said, Well I'm I'm heavily medicated, you know. I got MS. I'm heavily medicated, but I'm not crazy. So I waited till the dad paid for dinner. Then then I told him, "Thanks for bringing him," but I'm not working with. But that's him. a lesson you taught that kid. Hopefully, the family, right? Well, somebody need to tell. Someone me. need to tell him. I, I yeah. told the parents, the Dad just got awfully loud in the restaurant and obnoxious, and why? And and I just said, I, I don't like him, uh, and I shouldn't have done that. But so, so that's he's disrespect. That's the tree that he flew into. Right, and
0: now hopefully he learned, and next time he he won't make that mistake. The other thing, um, the other quote, and it's the title of your book, the book that you so kindly gave to me, and that I have read and has become a required reading for my children <laughs> house, is it's called "Get the Mud Out of the Water." Yeah,
1: yeah. Clear the mind. Tell me, what yeah. what, what does that quote? Well, mean? it it's interesting about that book because um, we I had a book called "Winning Sure Beats Losing." Um, and, and eighth chapter was about quicker recovery from adversity, uh, from feedback uh, the publisher had from, uh, people who bought the book. So I thought, why not write a whole book about how to recover quicker? And then I thought that'd be so boring, um, a book about recovery. Uh, so I asked a friend what I talk about. And he said, every time you speak before you mention that, you say, you gotta clear your mind. Before you move on with your life, um, but knowing that we can't clear our minds, uh, there's always something floating through there. Um, we, for all we know about the brain, we know very little. So, um, I thought, why not call it get the mud out of the water? You know, and, and in other words, do the best you can to clear things out, or, or even better, learn how to categorize things. You know, uh, uh, because everybody has things float through their mind that. Sh- don't have anything to do with what they're doing. Like my dad's been dead 40 years. I think about him every day, but not while I'm working. So, I lock him in the chest of drawers uh over in a, in one side of the brain and and take him out and think about him when i can and to teach kids to do that is really fun yeah. um and and it ha- it happens i say kids but but it, everybody's a kid to me um but but it's interesting it happens maybe even more so with college kids college athletes because they got so much floating around and the adjustment of going to college and all that so I get them to lock away these things, use the things in the middle for whatever they're pursuing. And then over here on the right are the things I can help them with.
0: Right. So that, I mean, it makes sense to me, to get that mud out of there. But you uh, know what? You
1: know, it's interesting, Josh, I, I, it wasn't written um, for sports. Uh, it was written for MS patients, and now it's my most popular book for athletes uh, and for corporate people, you, for salespeople.
0: Yeah, and 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 you mentioned you know the MS, which um, I know you're you know you're fighting with. Um, what is the parallels that you've learned with working with MS patients, and some of the advice you give them as it goes with the sports you know client well. As well?
1: When I start my program with um, with athletes, the first two things I have them do are all the same, no matter what the sport. <clears throat> Excuse me. The first thing is I have them list their assets. In other words, what are the things that you're happy about you a, a, as an athlete and your general environment about you, maybe support from parents, whatever. And then the next list is they list their liabilities. What are the things that drive you nuts? And everybody has so I don't care how many they have. The only thing I ask them to not prioritize um, is to list them as they come to mind. I take those two lists. And what you find is that during times when you're not doing well in the sport, the tendency of your emotions goes toward uh, avoiding your liabilities, and you actually forget what some of your assets are. Um, so I build a program around assets. And and after that, and I do this with everybody. I do it with salespeople in corporate environment. I I do it with anybody who wants to do the program. Um, and so, that's that's the first thing. Second thing, I have them list their expectations. This is important for kids. What do you expect from yourself? What do your coaches expect? What do your parents expect? What do your teammates expect? What you find with kids who are struggling in sport is they're, they're playing to other people's expectations instead of their own. So I take the assets and I look at the self-expectations. They may be realistic over time, expectations. But at this point, you're not there yet. Why? Because your assets don't show that you're there. So let's back them off a little bit and and experience some success so you can taste it and touch it and feel it. You know, um, it, it's, it's like setting a goal for five o'clock and at noon, it's obvious you're not going to get there. So you got to lower the goal. Well, psychologically, that could be devastating over time. Why not set a goal for nine o'clock and 10 o'clock?
0: Yeah. I've re- I've read that you always say that with goal setting, you want to be specific. You want to make them somewhat difficult, but also obtainable,
1: right? Yeah. You want to make them difficult because you want to stretch your system every day. Uh, and you got to put a timeline on them, um, so you can evaluate. And then uh, the most important thing of all you mentioned is they got to be attainable. I mean, you know, you see so many kids that have unrealistic goals. And I think so many times it's not their goals. their parents parents' goals.
0: Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you because um, (coughs) you you know this, my daughter is 15. My son's 12. They're very into, into sports. My network is that age, right? Like kids that are, you know, between five and high school age. Yeah. Um, and so that's, as, as parents, we're always talking and struggling and trying to figure out the best way to kind of have our kids have, get the best they can out of sports. Mm-hmm. Is there an age that is too young or an age where you, 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 is the right age to kind of start these approaches and systems with them?
1: Well, I, and this is my opinion, okay? Other people would do it differently, I'm sure. But um, for a long time, I would never work with a kid who was not a teenager, less than 13, and only had a few of those. Because um, I've always thought kids need to run the woods and get muddy and get dirty and have fun. Uh, we structure their sport environment too early. Um, there, I don't know if you remember Gary Williams, who used to be on MSNBC, called me one day, wanted to do an interview. Uh, something happened in Atlanta. A five-year-old team was play, uh, playing for state championship. And uh, one team had nine, one had eight. And the team that had nine. Said, "Let's play. It's about to catch. So the kids." So team had eight. won. So the team that had nine. sued the state. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so, at at least, five years old. Five year. Five years old. And and when I coached t ball, um, I um, in fact, Dansby Swanson, his I was his mom's assistant t ball coach when she was pregnant with him. I coached his brother and sister. But my my thought was have fun. Uh, Have fun. I had the parents on the field at every practice. Parents had to run, hit and throw. And I threw batting practice to the parents. So they could understand how tough the game was. Never had an issue with a parent all year. But, but it, it's, I've had parents call me, want me to work with a five-year-old. Uh, from Fort Lauderdale, um, I have a young girl, the number one pickleball player in the world. I've been with her since she was fourteen, and I just started a, a program in Phoenix with a thirteen-year-old pickleball player, um, and it was an incredible sport. Uh, but I, I, um, I don't like to work with kids. I, I, every now and then, I may work with a twelve-year-old, only because the training has gotten so sophisticated that le- the mental program actually not only helps you learn to get better. I mean, it it parts of the mental program are kind of motivating things, but, but the bigger part is to help you learn to get better. And if you're learning skills earlier, then it may be an asset to do them earlier. Yeah. So a lot
0: of people listening right now have kids and, and they're saying, okay, how do I – how do I accomplish this goal of my, of my son or my daughter having fun with the sport? We all say that. We want them to have yeah, fun with it. I don't yeah. know how many people truly mean it, but we all do say it, yeah. right? So what are some ways that as parents we can reflect that um, kind of mission in our children, whether it be before the game, during the game, or after the game, regardless of what the sport is like, how should parents be handling themselves?
1: Well, um, as you know, I, uh, uh, I have very specific things that parents are are responsible for. Transportation, um, money, money. Um, and support. I love it. Transportation, uh,
0: money, and support.
1: Yeah, uh, un, un, unwavering support. I mean, I've had parents tell kids after a game, a twelve-year-old one time, "The way you played, you're lucky you don't ride in a trunk." It's disgusting. Um, on the way home, and and um, they, um, I've seen parents fight. Uh, I was uh, in an environment where a mom shot an umpire um, in the in the rear end. <laughs> When he bent over to make a call. Say so shot? I shot Shotty with a 22. Yeah. Oh my um, after the game, the other umpires walk in the car, and a grandma gets out of the car and knocked him out with a water bottle. So then, two guys they had to haul away from the park. Uh, it, it It's very, very strange. Uh, East Cobb had a, a deal one year where they arrested four kid, 14 year olds, and four adults for assault. Um, It gets wild out there uh, on the field. Well, it's kind of nuts because it gets wild in the stands. I was talking to a a college catcher, a softball catcher the other day, and she said she finally had to have her mom go and sit in center field. She was so distracting to the whole team. To the whole team, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's not not fair to the kids. I, I always encourage parents, number one, let the kids play as many sports as possible. Um, they're five, six, seven years old. They have unending en- energy. Um, uh, I think soccer is a great sport to start because of the hand, eye and foot coordination. Um, it, it's, um, th- there's good carryover from soccer to like baseball. Um, I think that's a great sport to start with, but we don't know how to coach soccer. So soccer has an issue with ACL surgery with kids. I have a one player pickleball. I talked her into quitting soccer because eight girls on her team had ACL surgery. So there's something wrong with the coaching when that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, the the two most catastrophic injury sports in the country today will surprise you: soccer and competitive cheerleading. Not football. Uh, no, no, and soccer was was brought in this country as an alternative to football. Right, and the injuries are worse. Um, it, it it's just. Uh, um, a tragedy that it's a good thing on the one hand that parents parents volunteer to coach, but it's a scary thing on the other hand because they don't know anything about the game. Right. You, so always let the coaches always
0: coach. let the coaches coach. Yeah. You 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 mentioned one of the, the moms having to go out to the stands or out of the stands in the center field because she was distracting. Is that with the way she's talking to the players on the field? Is that the way she's interacting with other fans? Because speaking from, from me personally, like we're trying very hard to say less to the players on the field, right? Like they've been coached all week. They know what they need to do. Us saying something is not helping things, right? I mean, other than, I guess, an encouragement word. I mean, what, what would you say parents need to be saying to the kids in baseball when they're walking to bat or when they're pitching?
1: Well, number one, for every person like you, there's 20 who are just the opposite <laughs> parents who always yelling at kids about, let's say baseball, for example, you know, um, stay back. How many times have you heard a parent yell out, stay back? So we're saying, tell a kid. It's tradition, but it's awful because if a kid's thinking stay back, they're going to be late on everything because they're thinking about doing what you're asking them to do. Your last thought should always be something that takes you to the ball. It's like golf. To hell with a backswing. I don't care what it looks like. Um, I had a pro golfer that kept uh, every swing He'd say, my club plane's not right. And I told him one day, if you say club play one more time, I'm going to kill myself and you're going to have to haul my dead body around. rest. Because it's about getting to the ball. Uh, you remember Gary Sheffield, great baseball player. I loved him. His batting was so interesting to watch. But if you turn, when he was with us, the Braves, if you turn your back, you can always tell when he's hitting because the ball sounded different Sound off, off the, the bat. bat. Different. Yep. But he always got here to the hitting zone. And and we we need to deal more with that as opposed to getting so mechanical and so regimented in mechanics. We, you know, if you go to 20 hitting coaches, you'll find the 20 best ways to hit. Okay. And my my opinion with younger hitting coaches is if they could really hit, they'd be playing. <laughs> right. So I I, you know, I um Atlanta's fortunate they have probably the best hitting coach uh, for kids uh, that I've ever seen in 50 years the Braves uh no he he's uh, working with kids oh okay, okay. he that was he was head. a hitting coach uh with the Washington Nationals when I was there he's the best i've ever seen and and uh we had Bryce Harper back then and and he had him and and he's just so so good but he doesn't wear you out with with meaningless things to show you how much he knows the last thing that a kid needs
0: or an adult in the major's needs is when they're in the batter's box or on the pitcher's mound or about to hit a golf shot is to be thinking mechanics, right? That's what you're saying is clear all that stuff out of your mind and just be yourself
1: you you have um every sport uh, you know, used to I work primarily with baseball when it started now i have I have a world record holder, uh holder in pole vaulting. I have. You know, the number one women's billiards player out of the world's number two dart thrower. but And they're bizarre sports. But the the point is that there are certain threads that run across all sports, common threads, that separate the elite from the average people. And it's never talent. Everybody can play. Uh, it's, and when you get a certain age, everybody can play. The, the The difference maker is the great ones – let themselves play; they don't try hard to play, and 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 they and they recover between pitches or between shots, as opposed to the others who recover between innings or in games. Baseball. Yeah, yeah. When I worked with um, with John many many years ago, and pitchers for fifty years, basically, uh, one of the primary things to teach him was how to recover between pitches, and then um, and and then never tow the rubber to avoid anything. You know, sometimes they'll tow the rubber, don't throw a ball or don't walk with this guy. And if you do that, you step back, take a deep breath, pull up a good pitch, and, and we have something I put in their mental bag to get them through that. But if you get two quick outs as a pitcher, what do you do? You 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 back off the mound, mentally restart the inning.
0: I've uh, 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 read that you've said that you get two quick outs, you only let your guard down a little bit. You do, you
1: you do, you, you've got to do everything you do on the emotional edge. Okay. If you're, if you're, if somebody says, how many times have you ever heard people say, just relax and play? Well, you never want to say something to kids that has a dual meaning. Like, um, because their meaning is gonna be far different from yours. If you're telling the kid relax, you're telling them get your emotions under control. What the kid hears is relax. And he's heard that since he was a little kid going to sleep. So relax means cut, you know, cut the system off. Mm-hmm. Um and and so if you're too low on emotion, your performance is low because you're not quick enough, and it's like your body is the car body, and 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 your brain is the motor. If the motor idol's car doesn't move, so um, so if you're too low, it's terrible. On the other hand, if you're too high, then you're nuts. So you can't play either. So so you a lot of times if you're on the edge, the issue is very seldom ever getting up the edge. The issue is getting down to the edge with athletes who really want to play, let's say on a one to 10, getting them down to six. Um, but after you get two quick outs, without you knowing it, your emotions may go down to a three or a four. And all of a sudden you have a walk, a hit batter, a double. Very a home quickly run. there's an inning coming. Yeah. It happened yesterday on TV when I was watching uh, a college game. And
0: I haven't heard you use a word like an athlete being in the zone. Maybe you have. I haven't seen it. But is that something that, that you uh, subscribe to, that these no, athletes can go to a place and they're no. in the, quote, zone? Or is that just kind of no. something that commentators talk about?
1: Heavens no. I I used to hear people uh, describe a pitcher. Well, he's in the zone. That's BS. I, uh, you can only focus for a matter of seconds, okay? Maybe... 45 seconds the longest so going in the zone is stupid uh, you because if you try to do that then you're going to start trying too hard to play okay and trying to hold the zone um and and you if I work with a hitter I think in a three or four hour game he may be focused total to 10 minutes. Um, which is interesting. Uh, but the yeah. zone, no, no, that you shouldn't tell kids.
0: It. My take on the zone is it's just a fancy way of saying the person is feeling really confident and they're, they're, you know, feeling good about what they're doing. Like a basketball player, yeah. he's making yeah. three pointers or she's making three pointers because yeah. they feel good. And they're confident a baseball player sees the ball. It's only in slow motion. That to me is what the zone yeah. means.
1: Yeah, um, It yeah. all
0: goes back to the mental approach that, that you were speaking of.
1: Well, it, it, it's interesting. I had a kid uh, with the Hawks, number one pick one year and he's six ten, and he, he, they he, he called me he actually called me a lot of times coaches call but he actually called me because if he missed a three-pointer he wouldn't even look in the basket the rest of the game so um, just totally and, threw him and off. I told him when I was in college I couldn't run I couldn't jump I hated defense but I could really shoot and and my coach used to tell me the reason you play is because you can shoot so if I was over five if I kept shooting, I may be five for 10. You know, <laughs> So I was never, uh, uh, non-shooting, uh, not shooting was never an option for me. So he goes to Milwaukee, plays a game. He calls me the next day, he got 27 points. He was player of the game. And he said, thanks so much. I missed my first two threes and I hit five in a row. There you
0: go. That goes back to, to what you said earlier about avoidance. You don't want to be avoiding things. If, yeah, if you're not yeah, taking shots, absolutely. then you're avoiding the success that could come with it. So I, I I hear you. Um all right. You mentioned, you mentioned Rob, well, I brought up smolts first and then you did. Um, what was the call that, if you can speak to it, that the Braves made to you and said, This is what we need, this is the 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 mission, and how'd you go about doing it?
1: Well, it 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 was one of those crazy things. Um, and I'm a I'm a spiritual person, okay? I, I I think certain things happen for a reason. I really do. Um, I was teaching a professor tenured at Florida International, Miami. Uh, taught five hours a week. Uh, played a lot of tennis, played a lot of golf. But I, I, and I worked with the Astros then. Um, and then I got tired of university politics. Uh, so I quit and moved to Marietta. Because my wife was from here. And that was in 83. And I worked with athletes from different teams. Mackie Sasher the Mets couldn't throw back the pitcher. I worked with him. Um, I had uh, uh, um, the Yankees second baseman. Knobloch. Guy, Knobloch, who couldn't, couldn't throw throw it first. Up. Yeah, I had him. Um and uh, that was a fun thing, and it was uh, we spent the whole month of January in the Yankees complex in Tampa with him and, and Derek Jeter and the coach for Philly now Rob Thompson and and uh, throwing
0: these guys could throw anywhere anytime except for yeah. from second to first or was yeah. Sasser was back to the pitcher right he could throw yeah. to second base fine yeah. on a steal he could throw
1: to any base but the difference in the with throwing the issues are time. Uh, that that's the issue it's time when you have time you can't throw i had a left fielder major league left fielder couldn't throw if he caught a routine fly ball he couldn't throw it to second if the second baseman was standing on the back um which was bizarre they flew him in here and we went to the park and he hit a towel on the fence eight out of ten times and i went and stood in front of the towel and he hadn't thrown me one yet so The manager for the Giants called me, and he said, what are we going to do, Jack? And I said, well, it was real simple. I called the second baseman told him not to stand there. (laughs) And he said, said, I could have done that. And I said, yeah, but you paid me. And, and, you know, in other words, show up when the ball gets here. But any time you – I have catchers today, uh, female catchers, um, one in Texas uh, who can't throw. There's a college Big Ten, I mean – SEC catcher right now in softball, she has the yips. If I told you, I'll tell you after this program. But it's so obvious to see because it's time. And what coaches do, they'll have that person count to three or pat the glove or drop to one knee. All those things take time. So it has to be a reaction throw back the pitcher um, because they can throw it at, like you said, any base. But that's a reaction. Knobloch could go behind behind second and first and make great plays, but they were reaction plays. Right. So he calls me one night after a game i got a problem I don't think you can deal with. About 1 in the morning. And I said, what is it? He said, Yankee fans are brutal. He he said, I did what you said. I kept my feet moving. I made it a bang-bang play. And when I caught it and looked at first, all the fans behind first were holding up gloves. And I couldn't <laughs> find my first baseman. <laughs> yeah, but he got out of it, right? I mean, he, yeah, ended, he ended up working he, through it. He um, did better,
0: yeah. And and so Smoltz, was it a similar type of, of approach? Well, Bob,
1: Bobby Cox called me at the All-Star break in 91. And I've met Bobby before, and he said, "I got a pitcher. His record's two and eleven. And he's big. He's strong. He's a good kid. He's a spiritual kid. He he's healthy, um, and he can't win. He uh, throw okay and can't win. And he throws bad and can't win. And can you? We've tried everything. Uh, can you see what you can do?" And I, my first thoughts always been I always try to look at the bright side of things. I nothing ventured, nothing gained. You know, so I took him out golfing, the next day, and I thought because he takes our pride in his golf. And I thought if I can get him to mentally leave a bad golf shot and look forward to the next shot, as opposed to not trying to not make another bad shot, then we'll go to the stadium and we'll go to the bullpen and we'll do that with pitching, and that's how it started and and we we worked on it every day and um ESP, you know how the media, they try to create what you're doing. They try to create what I was doing. They didn't have a clue what I was doing. I wore a red shirt the first night he won and and I was I was superstitious. I am a baseball guy, so I wore a red shirt every time. well they they thought it was the red shirt. Um, well, my mom called me one after a game, and she said, "What were you telling John?" during the game. And I said, nothing, Mom. And she said, every time he'd touch a cap, ESPN cl- show a close-up. And they said, Dr. Lou Allen's giving him signals. Well, John and I get in the dressing room, and we come up with our own signals <laughs> That's hard. next door. And <laughs> it's the a cam- mess cameras were flying everywhere, and, and it didn't mean anything. It was just I was there. Everybody's written all these things. In fact, it's in a book. You know, uh, uh, I think it's if you're a Brace fan, the uh, hundred things you need to know before you die. Chapter nineteen was about my red shirt. It it didn't mean anything. It it I wore it because I superstitions. And 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 by sitting there, I could see him. And 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 then I worked probably as much with Greg Olson. Remember the catcher? Oh no, sure. I worked as much with him as I did with John early on because he was the only guy in the game who could control what John was doing. Uh, so I told him if you see so and so in his face, go out John there and there. shut it yeah. down. And he was a tremendous help to me. A, a wonderful person, but tremendous help to me that whole year. And 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 it was fun. I mean, we had fun. I I you know the, the media gets involved and all that but but we really we really had fun i my program would be nothing if john Smoltz didn't throw 90 at least 94 he he was a good pitcher he had tremendous slider and and uh split and and he um you know and then he had tommy john came back and even threw harder mm-hmm. um and um Tremendous pitcher. So my,
0: so one of the many takeaways I have, but what really jumped out to me is you found something that was not baseball related to connect with him on yeah. and make a parallel yeah. with the golf. Yeah. And that probably just changed the entire way his brain was being wired for that and it really connected that's awesome
1: and, and it did because he thought he saw this I think we never talked about it but he saw it as a way to help his golf you know I, I mean it's it's interesting that people who come into sports psychology now they they come in with textbook knowledge but not a lot of real life experiences
0: do you think that's similar to how analytics is like controlling the game now as opposed to just baseball men i mean now it's how fast are you throwing what's your spin rate what's your velocity as opposed to throw strikes control know how to pitch
1: right well you're absolutely right And, and the the more serious issue is that it's it's filtering down to young kids and and a lot of people don't know for example what launch angle is um but if you look at launch angle as an example if you're if you're using launch angle to hit you're in the zone maybe a a split second if if you're hitting through the zone you're in you're in the zone forever so that's the reason last year there were more strikeouts and hits in baseball for the first time in history um and and so that launch angle is bs if 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 um if your launch angle's 30% and minus 24 and they both go over the fence and what the hell is the difference? They're both home runs. So it's fun to talk about. It's a piece to the pie, but it's not the game, uh, that pitch clock and, and, and the hitters in the box and all that, those things have helped the game because they, they've they speeded up the game, and I, I agree with that because some guys, when, when guys get on base, they shut the game down, and it's so boring. I had a pit, major league pitching coach call me one night. During a game, I'm watching on TV. I see him on the bench. He calls me up, and I say, what's going on? He said, I'm just sitting here wondering about the fourth inning. I said, wondering what? He said, is baseball as boring as I think it is? <laughs> I said, I'm afraid so. That, that's, uh, yeah. the, that's the reason I'm kind of addicted to softball now.
0: I agree that the pitch clock is has just been so great. I mean, the, the, yeah. the, the games are moving quicker. Things are happening. Because, yeah. um, like, my son, he loves playing it. But, God dang, to have him watch a game, it's too slow. Oh. You know, it's just it's too slow. Um, yeah, softball you're big into now, too. Um is it is a women's softball, mostly. Yeah. Because one thing that me and you've talked about is, is the way that, you know, girls and female sports go and what drives females versus boys and male sports. So talk yeah. a little about
1: that. I, I just, if you watch a baseball game with kids and you watch a softball game with girls and you tell me when you walk away, which one enjoyed the game more? Girls laugh and they have fun, and and somebody hit a home run. You look at the pitcher, and they're laughing. She thinks she hit a home run. <laughs> it's kind of, and they all gather on the, <laughs> the pitching rubber. But, but it's it's like if that same home run happens in a boys' game, the pitcher it's like somebody kicked his dog, you know. And if you if you don't enjoy the game, for heaven's sakes, walk away. Um, I have parents who who force kids to to play. I had one parent had a girl uh, hit, take bad practice 365 days a year. Mm. Um, uh, that's crazy. Um, that's just nuts. Uh, uh, and how do I deal with a parent like that? It makes it hard to deal with kids. Um, and, and so when I tell parents, your child and I are going to have conversations that you don't need to know about. And that bothers some parents. Um, and, and so, and when I give them the books, I give the parents a set of books so they know what they're reading. But, but it's interesting because girls just love the game. I, I, I just, you know, what really, really hit me about three years ago, I'm watching a boys, a men's college baseball regional game. I think it was Texas a and and I watched the first inning. I turned over and I watched two softball World Series games and turn back on they were in the fifth inning that that's that's it yeah oh yeah. I have terrible time watching a baseball game yeah. unless it's somebody I'm working with
0: right right the the girls um they seem to to enjoy it just being out there with their friends and competing the boys they enjoy it when they're doing well like success to them yeah, is yeah. T- I,
1: I think well with boys they've they've grown up being told how good they are um and they're gonna Oh, I've, 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 my son's wanted to play in a major league since they're 12 years old. Well, we all did, okay? But don't feed that thought. Don't feed that thought. I, I hate it when athletes come on TV after a great performance and they'll say, you can do anything you want to do. If you got a dream, you can do it. That's BS. Don't lie to kids. It's like motivational speakers charging $300 to tell you you can do anything you want to do in life. And then you walk out and you can't buy gas in a car and food for the kids. And you go back to real life. Uh, it's wrong. Mm-hmm. We're all wired differently. And we're all capable. I wanted to throw 96 miles an hour. I threw 84. Um, I would have gone nuts if I'd, somebody told me that I could do anything I wanted. Uh, because we can't. We we have certain capabilities. And there's no perfect. You know, there's no perfect, especially in sports there's no perfect and and when you talk about practice makes perfect that's wrong uh, don't don't plant that seed in kids especially if you're a person the kid respects okay and and so don't plant those false seeds in kids and so boys are uh, uh, more likely to be a bit entitled girls are are incredibly easy to work with because they're like a sponge they they want to have fun they want to learn um, and, and probably 75 percent of people I have now are Facebook softball players and some good ones you know I've got some of the best in the world in college but um and they're just happy as hogs and slop you know I mean I I just love that but the guys it's like golfers female golfers easy to work with pro golfers, Arrogant. They, they'll ask you a question, then they'll answer it, walk away, and all I got left to do is take the money and go home.
0: <laughs> Speaking of golf, so you, you, I told you I'm, I'm a golfer. Not great, but I'm okay. I can get around. Um, I still get nervous on the first tee, sure. like in a in a in a match. Three footers still drive me crazy. Um, I still have games where I throw up all over myself, and I don't know where these swings came from. Like, and and I and I understand all these things. I still can't master. Like, what? <laughs>
1: Help me! That that's a that is a great question. I was hoping you'd bring that up. Um, it's called um, uh, pre-performance anxiety, and and I have parents call me all the time. My, my child is anxious before the game, and I say, good for them, because pre-performance anxiety is not an issue. Anxiety, you either anxiety is either an asset or it's a detriment. So. Um, uh, if if the pre-performance anxiety means nothing, um, all it means in most cases is you want to get started. Okay. Uh, I've been doing corporate speaking since 82, and I get it before every speech. Why? Because, and the bigger the crowd, the better. Because I always figure the bigger the crowd, somebody's going to like me. And, and <laughs> you got a good chance, whatever. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> as opposed to speaking to 15, 20 people. That's a lot of pressure. That's, that's a good but, way to, to train your brain to switch it yeah, around to. But, that's good. But the pre performance anxiety is okay. Now, it, it's okay to have that. But where it becomes important is when you tee, when you when you address the ball to hit the first shot. Does it go up a little and become a detriment? Does it go down a little and become an asset? Now, so mm-hmm. what you do, it, it's it's critical that when you hit balls on the on the range before, you don't hit them as practice, you, as exercise. You hit them with some meaning, like you should. By the time you get on the course, you should have hit every club um, well at least one time. Why? Because um, th- this is a lengthy answer, I probably No, this is great. I'm, I'm, by, by the time I, kids I are 18 years old, they have been told no over 200,000 times.
0: Okay. Don't do this. Don't do Starts that. Starts in the
1: crib. Yeah, put up the gates. Don't drink the cat water. Don't eat the dog. Food. <laughs> you know, and it goes through uh, it goes through your sports, it goes through education. Very little positive right now in education. And and so when you get to be 18, you come out in the world with the expectations that if I avoid failing I'll succeed, which is very wrong. Mm-hmm. There may be two ways to hit a golf club. Maybe Couple ways to hit it well and a thousand ways to hit it wrong. So, so it, it's, there's another file there. That's the negative file in your brain and the cup runneth over. So what we need to do is let's take your golf. What we need to do is pack this file full of positive things. Okay. Right now, if you're on a course and you leave your mind open to think of what it wants, the negative file open every time. Why? Cause it's full now. So what we need to do to counter that you can't forget bad things okay don't, don't people tell you oh forget that well you can't do that uh, we're not wired that way you I mean, put our air hose in the left side and blow it all out the right I, and that's unethical so um so you've got what's the next alternative feel the positive file so when you're on the range you you after you hit a great let's say you hit a 7 iron you hit a great 7 iron that you really like before you hit the next shot, mentally hit that 7-iron again. It takes about three seconds. Mm-hmm. And, and see it in real time. If you see it too fast, you're going to set your body up be fast. See it in slow motion, going to be slow. So see it in real time. Now you've just tucked it away in your brain. And do that with every club. So now when you go on the course, you've got every club stored up here with good shots. Same way with putting. Never putt to avoid anything bad if you if you read the putt and it breaks a foot to the right and you then you approach the putt and all of a sudden you're thinking is it a foot or a foot and a half then you don't putt it you step back take a deep breath reassess and, and yeah and, and commit and to it never hit a putt to a, avoid anything always putt to make the putt because in a good round of golf, you're going to have to make some long putts. I worked with a guy on his putting one year, and over 15 feet, he put to get close. I said, no, no, you, you putt to make every putt. And he became the youngest or the oldest person to ever qualify for the British Amateur Open. There you go. Because he, he, he learned how to enjoy
0: putting. So let me be honest with you about something I used to do that's going to piss you off. With my with my golf, if I had a tough shot, let's say over water or there's a lot of hazards, that pretty brand new Pro V1 that I bought, I put it in my pocket <laughs> and go and go grab an old, you know, an old beat up yeah. whatever Callaway because I was trying to avoid losing that nice ball that might happen on this swing. That sets me up to to
1: for no chance for success, right? Yeah, I mean, that's crazy. But you that's what I was. De- you never did. ever 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 hit a shot to avoid anything. Correct. It's like you step up and your first thought is, oh God, I don't want to hit in the water on the right. So you end up hitting in the woods on the left. <laughs> so so it's. I'm not saying it's not going to happen. It's human nature. You step up, you see the course, then your thought, I don't want to go here, don't want to go there. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But don't hit the ball with that attitude. It's fine to think, I don't want to go here. The next question is, where do I want to go? Where'd I want to go? And if you did that with every shot, golly, I, I worked with a golfer. He, he'd never gotten his card. Finally, his mom called me and worked with him. He got his card. First year, made 300000 stayed on the tour. Next year, 600000 stayed on the tour. Then I had a meeting after that year, and I said, listen, you know who this guy is if I miss his name. But I said, if you're going to play to make the cut, I don't have time. But if you're gonna to play to win on Thursday, I got a lot of time.
0: Amen. Yeah.
1: And 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 he he bought into it. Um, and the next year he made 1.6 million. There you go. And the next year his wife did said she could do my program. He lost his card and never got it back. What said he couldn't do the program? He, he, she said she'd seen my program and so she could do it. Oh, she could do it. Yeah. And that that didn't work out very well for them. Uh, no, he never got his card back. But it, it it's interesting how fragile. Uh, we are mentally, and it always comes out in sport. Like if I'm playing, um, if I'm speaking at a corporate convention and there's a golf tournament, I try to be in the group with the CEO because you find out who people really are on a golf, golf course.
0: course. Yeah. What is your message with, because uh, I mean, your list of corporate clients reads like the who's who of biggest companies in the, in the world, in the country. Um, what is your approach to business people? Is it very similar to athletes?
1: Same thing. I... um a great example when "Get Get the Mud Out of the Water" came out. I told you we we did that program in in um, Times Square. Two weeks later, I get a call from the Wall Street Journal, and the reporter. I had to explain to her what "Get the Mud Out of the Water" meant. She's from New York, and, and so so uh, she she had she had one question: Is helping? a salesperson get out of a slump similar to helping a hitter get out of a slump. And I say it's the same thing. Um, they all play to win. Um, if you don't play to win, don't play. Um, and, and i talk about that. I said, you know, all the things I do with hitters and, and I even thought about it and I thought it is, it's the same thing. It's just sports psychology and business. Um, and I've done uh, individual work with, with corporate executives on almost, and I look at them like a Bobby Cox, you know, as a, as as the a head of that organization, nobody's ever been better. He's the most kind, caring, considerate, giving human being I've ever met.
0: You were telling me a story about him um, just before we started. Oh, uh, I mean, y'all's
1: relationship has maintained all these years, right? He's wonderful. I was with him almost every day for 16 years. Um, they asked Gary Sheffield, who played baseball for 20 years, what, what was his most fun time? And he said one year with Bobby Cox. They questioned over eight hundred major leaguers, former major leaguers, and who would you like to play for before you retire? Seven and fifty said Bobby Cox. Yeah, he's a w- wonderful human being. But but anyway, I um um we talked about that for an hour, and so a month later it came out. Um, I'm getting ready to speak for Eli Lilly, the pharmaceutical people, and I get five calls one morning, and it was same message five times from all over the country. You know, I read about you this morning. do Do you do you work with individuals? I like to know more about your program. I read about you in the Wall Street Journal. Well, my thought first thought was I've never read one, so I had to run down the lobby and buy one so I didn't sound stupid. <laughs> 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 and the headlines the headlines of the uh, in, in the Wall Street Journal was was in a work slump question mark about two inch letters. Uh, what would Jack do? What would Jack do? Yeah. And I called my friend who's a minister and I said, go down to this church store and gather up those WWJD JD. bracelets. I, we'll th- sell them.
0: <laughs> that's the first thing I was thinking, <laughs> WWJD.
1: Yeah. It was funny. But but it's interesting. Um, I've never done anything differently. I've been speaking like since 82 at corporate conventions. I've never done anything differently with companies than I do with sports. Um Everybody pleased to win. Yeah, the, pair, the only the difference there. is, as a hitter, if you hit 300, you go to the Hall of Fame. As a sales guy, if you hit 300, you get fired. You get fired. So. Yeah, the standards are a little differently. <laughs> yeah, um, you had told me a story about Paul
0: O'Neill, yeah. um, best athlete I've worked, best with. best athlete you worked with, and people know Paul O'Neill. I think it'd be interesting if you mentioned share kind of your experience with him. Well, I,
1: I, it's it's just a um, it's. To me, it's a bizarre thing because I I can't imagine it ever, ever happening again. Number one, he's the best athlete I've ever worked with, and, and I've been in baseball over 50 years. Um, he was Mr. Basketball in Ohio. Um, he shot 72 in golf all when he was 18. He beat Jim Courier, who was number one in the world in tennis. And I think the Reds signed him just because he's from Cincinnati, and a good athlete. He was with them nine years. In the winter of 93, he calls me. And he said, Will you work with me? And I said, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm with the Braves. He said, Well, you got to. <laughs> and I said, You're a real good kid. And I said, Well, tell me about your Cincinnati. Well, I hit 267. I had 20 home runs a year. We won a World Series. I said, Paul, that's good, man. He said, Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It's good in Cincinnati, but I got traded to the Yankees last night and they're going to hate me. And I said, Well, Paul, they hate everybody. So so don't worry about that. So I begged and begged the Braves to let me work with him. And they kept saying, No, no. And finally I pulled out the Trump card and I said, Man, we'll never play the Yankees. And yeah, America so, League, National League, yeah, we're not going to match so, up. So they let me work with him. He ended up beating us in the 96 World Series with a catch. And he ended up beating us in 99 the World Series with two dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and and that Books. was the day uh, a very very interesting the toughest i think if he could come up with the toughest mental approach ever, it would have been that day. His dad died the night before. Um, And and so I started working with him, okay, the week he got traded to Yankee. Worked with him. Every, we talked every other day. He'd call me 2 in the morning, 2.30 in the morning. Jack, what are you doing? I'd say, I'm taking a nap. What are you doing? He'd say, oh, God, we're in Seattle, aren't we? <laughs> they forget where they are because yeah. all the a hotels are hotels. And, yep. and so anyway, um, he... I did the same thing with him that I did with Smoltz in a way. The first part of the program was teach him how to recover between swings because if he had a bad first at bat, his night was over. If he had a bad first swing his at bat was over. So, um, so I put some things in his middle bag so he could recover between swings. And, um, he and his wife been together since kindergarten. I mean, wonderful family, three kids. And, and I ended up working with one of them. And, uh, um, he became the only Yankee in history to hit over 306 straight years and retired. And they retired his number last summer in August. And, you know, here's a guy I haven't worked with since 2001. Um, and obviously, has plenty of money. Um, but they retired his number on Sunday. And on Monday, he sent me a, the sweetest note said, Thanks. There would have been no New York without you. That's awesome, and, and that was that's so kind of sweet. got to make you feel
0: good. I mean, it almost like it does. You know, I mean, like if you look at the the arc of your career and the people who you've touched, and like how you got there, you've got to feel really proud of yeah. all that you've. Been I,
1: I really um, people like that. They just they just don't come around every day. Um, I remember his dad. I, I think I told you a story. His dad died, and mm-hmm. and and I, I I convinced him that if he'd give me ten minutes out of the next four hours. We'd make it work. And because I think for at-bats, he, he wouldn't have to focus even that long. And I put something in his mental bag. He got two doubles and beat us. And, um, and, and it's just a, a humble, caring guy. What, what resonates
0: with me, a lot of the stuff you said, obviously, but the best athlete you've ever seen still struggles – with, I guess, a confidence issue if the first at bat goes wrong and the first swing goes wrong, meaning that any one of our kids, they need to accept that that's something they can work on and it's yeah. it's not something they should be ashamed of and they can get through it, right?
1: Well, it, it's like, um, uh, Josh, it's like when a kid strikes out and, and, and they get berated by the parents or even the other kids on the team. And my position is why not support them and compliment them because – it, it it's ver- impossible to hit without swinging the bat. So you were fifty percent right by striking out. So you're on your way now. You just got to hit the ball, right? But so it's not a negative thing. It is if you swing the bat, you're not afraid to stand in there, and that's something to overcome with kids. You know, it it's um, um, so many things we could influence mentally if we took the time, um, and it's sitting up there waiting to be used um it's like people with ms you know i spent 10 years traveling 40 cities a year talking to ms patients because the suicide's so high eight times the national average and after i was diagnosed and it was interesting how i don't know if it's interesting how that came about um i was diagnosed in 2004 with ms two worse things are heat and Heat and stress. That's what I do. Yeah, that's baseball. So Bobby got me through that and convinced me to go to spring training again and and see if I could do it because uh, I don't want to do it halfway. I went to spring training. Uh, things went well. Um, um, I um, um, I <laughs> I was on a cane, um, so one of the coaches bought me a bat, Masterson cane, you know, with the the you know the Sterling mm-hmm. knob and. And for those who remember Bat Masterson, I'm standing up by the batting cage, and I'm leaning on my new cane. And a player comes over and he said, "God, Doctor Jack, that looks like good wood." <laughs> and I said, "Well, thanks." And he. And the next thing I hear is an explosion. He took it to bat. He used it and, to the cage. Yeah, and and it it exploded. <laughs> And I'm thinking, he'll come over here. He's a good kid. He'll come over and he'll say, God, Dr. Jack, I'm sorry. I'll buy you a new one. Um, But he comes over and he's got these two pieces in his hand. And he said, Dr. Jack... God, you're lucky. I found out this wasn't good wood. You could have gotten hurt with this. <laughs> and I said, "Well, thank God you saved my life." Well, we'll and, get a
0: picture of what you, yeah. the, the the baseball uh, yeah. bat cane you're using now. I think oh, it, that, it was so awesome. funny. That's, and
1: and um, but anyway, I came back, and the first night back, we had a home game, and and I'm walking up steps, and in the dark, and somebody said, "Doctor Jack, is that you?" And and I turned around, and there was a homeless person in the bottom of the steps, and. He said, I said, was that you? And he said, yeah. Yeah. I said, well, what can I do for you? And he said, nothing. He said, I'll never forget this. He said, my buddies and I live up under the Highway 20 bridge. We've been living up there a few years. We read about your MS in February in the Atlanta Constitution, and they sent me down here tonight to make sure I found you and told you we're praying for you and we hope you feel better real wow. soon. And he disappeared, and I never saw him after that. And I went to bed, and I can't. I, I'd be lying if I told you I didn't have thoughts about the end of my life um, because um, my life was sport. I, I, I was good at it. I worked at it, and all of a sudden it's taken away. And mm. I woke up the next morning and I thought maybe. Maybe God took thirty-five years to teach me to be good at what I do with the mind. Now it's time to help other people, other athletes, and I started traveling. Like I said, forty cities at least a year. Talked to MS patients, and and it changed my life. Um, Basically, I was speaking in San Diego. And um at a Dave and Buster's and um, I'm signing books afterward. And a lady came up in a wheelchair and she said, thanks. And I said, well, I'm glad you like it. And she said, you don't understand. She said, I've been planning my suicide for three weeks and tonight you open my eyes and I'm going to be fine. Wow. And I looked at my World Series ring and I, my first thought, Josh, was it's just a, ring. just a ring. Life's about touching people's lives in sport. I had a parent come up to me. I did a program for a team I'd never done before. Like uh, every couple of weeks, I go do something with this little softball team, and I always, I don't do programs for teams unless parents come, because I always have something to say to them. And and this guy came up to me about halfway through, and he said, "I, I hope my daughters learned some, but I've learned to be a better parent." That's
0: what it's all about, and yeah. the message that you're spreading through your books and through your talks and through being so gracious to come spend an hour with someone like me, you know, gets the word out. And you know, I just, I just applaud you. You know, I
1: appreciate good, good, it. Good
0: for you a lot. I'm just you know?
1: having fun, you know. And I've never. People always, you know, I'm 79. And people always ask me when you go retire, and I said, I've never had a bad day uh, at work. Why would I retire? Uh, you know, I just had four strokes last year um i daddy gershwin my good friend he told me the reason i lived was God was going to bring me in for a couple of innings, but last second he went with a right hander. <laughs> well,
0: I'm glad you brought up Danny. I wanted to bring him up too before we were done. He he connected me and you. Uh, Danny is is uh, he's a court reporter, extravagant, uh, a perfect per- court reporter. Um, he has listened to me in depositions, ramble
1: on and talk. So uh, and you know, a, a grandfather, most famous composer in the world, George Gershman. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, 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 talented, talented family and a great guy. Um, but look, Doctor Jack sincerely thank you for for coming here today you know when i started this podcast you never know the direction it's going to go or the people yeah. you're going to meet but this is just proof positive that it's all worth it that that i'm doing all this stuff because i've never had the opportunity to sit with you so i've learned a ton like i said read your book my kids are reading your book um i'm going to soak up every hour that we just had and, and listen to this again and, and just thank you very much
1: no i i uh, you don't know how much i appreciate it i, I kind of when I get invited to do something like this, it really uh, starts my wheels turning, and then I end up trying to do another book. And I, you know, I can't read and write anymore. And Danny did my last book, he, and, uh, and he's going
0: to do the next one. Yeah, we talked about it last time. How he, know, yeah, he he did the book for you. Your, your words and your thoughts, of course. Oh,
1: we talk about Tony Stewart, other guys in other sports that you never think about uh that it it's it's all the same,
0: yeah it's all the same now the ring you're wearing it is you know it is beautiful it's ninety two
1: I always always that it was my, always my favorite ring yeah um, um if you ask players uh, who were on the ninety five World Series champion team in ninety one. Most all of them I tell you the most most fun years ninety one because nothing was expected. That was the twins. We
0: were at worst to first, you know, yeah. the huge comeback. Yeah. Um I was, was twelve years old at the time. I mean, that's what hooked a lot of kids into baseball.
1: Yeah. In Atlanta. Yeah, you know? it, it did. And people still remember it, you know. Um, it's amazing. I think more people in Marietta know Danny Gershwin now than than yeah. Probably know him in his whole life because he made my cane. And every time I go to the square, people will talk about my cane. I talk about Danny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's great. Well, look, um, people people want to hear more from you. I mean, I know you got a Twitter account. That you got stuff out there. Is there a way people can kind of
1: follow you? I think it's it's right now. They they we just had an issue in uh, in uh, um, Australia, Melbourne, with the uh, the website. So they are trying to get that up and, you know, where it's supposed to be. But Dr. Jack Sports, they can reach me and um, they can email me. Um, um, it's jlew18 at aol.com. My son told me I'm the only person in the universe uses AOL. And and um, I, I can barely turn on my phone, but, <laughs> um, you know, and, and they can reach me there, call me anytime. I'm, I'm with the MS. I'm up to one or two every night. And um, I, I just think, and and if they use me fine, if they don't fine, but I think with young kids who really like sport, really have fun, then there's two things. Number one, get somebody to work with them on the mental side because it helps you learn faster. It helps you deal with adversity fast uh, better. Um, it, it helps you lock in when you need to. It helps you communicate because kids don't talk anymore. Uh, it, it, it helps you in so many ways, no matter what the sport. Um, and the other thing is, make sure your kids um, get away from the sport. Um, have time when they get away. Uh, I mentioned, kids. yeah, I mentioned the dad who had his daughter hit three hundred sixty-five days a year. Went to college, best hitter in Georgia. Went to college and quit the first week. Um, it, it, it's a doggone shame. Uh, get away, get away. Find a time, have friends away from the sport, and so that you can get away. Um, that's probably the biggest issue I have with people who never get away from the sport. And sometimes that's a kid's fault. Sometimes that's the parent's fault.
0: These are important takeaways, people. I encourage people to, to, you know, search out all of your information they can find. It's accessible on the internet. Get these books um, and just just learn from the man. So, thank you, as an Atlantan, for helping the Braves have that success. Without you, I don't know if it would have been possible. I so, appreciate. Thank you for allowing us to enjoy some. Uh, some championships
1: well thank I look you forward to,
0: yeah, i look forward to staying in touch and, and being friends i think you're a hell of a guy and this has been pre- a very special hour for i me.
1: appreciate that and and i appreciate so much you having the courage to talk with me in public
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh anytime my friend all right guys thank y'all for listening i know that you enjoyed this one as much as i did and uh, as always keep chopping